I'm Matt Miller, and this is Interesting, the show that brings you the people and ideas that are shaping our world. Today, art as therapy. Everyone knows that art is important, but many times we come away from a museum feeling baffled, underwhelmed, or even inadequate in the face of our apparent failure to grasp what all the fuss is about. What if our unsatisfying relationship to art isn't our fault, but the problem instead is the way art is taught, sold, and presented by the art establishment? And what if a fresh way of thinking about art's purpose and uses can help us lead more fulfilling lives? That's the case made by my guest today, Alain de Botton. Botton is the best-selling author of The Consolations of Philosophy, How Proust Can Change Your Life, Status Anxiety, and most recently, Religion for Atheists. His new book, co-authored with John Armstrong, is Art as Therapy. Welcome, Alain. Thank you so much, Matt. Uh, great to have you. Uh, so I've been I've been reading your book on planes, trains, not automobiles, really, and I feel a little guilty because I've been I've been scribbling and underlining, and so I've been defacing in a kind of sacrilegious way what is this really lovely art book that's suitable for coffee tables. So I think every every household needs to own two. Isn't that the right way to Absolutely. open an interview? <laughs> one, one, one for display, one for display, exactly. and one for the kind of deep one for annotation. Exactly for annotation. <laughs> exactly. So let let me start with why did you write this book? Um, look, I think in a way what I've been doing across a number of books is looking at culture as a source of therapy. Now, we're a bit suspicious about this because the kind of elite view is works of art and culture do not have anything in particular to teach us, to show us. They are very important in themselves and cultured and educated people should know about them, but let's not turn them into you know, objects of self-help. But ever since my my, my book, um, How Proust Can Change Your Life, um, I've been very interested in this notion of culture as being therapeutic. And um, I've always been very interested in art. And it, it just, you know, the, the moment came when I thought, hmm, now's the time to try and do a book which will connect up um, works of art with individual sources of stress, distress, consolation, etc., um, rather in the way that I've done it for works of philosophy or French literature or, or, or other other works of culture. And what, what I love about it when you do this is you bring these kind of fresh lens that I think challenges the conventional thinking of the establishment in those domains. Take us through, you have a kind of a section up front in the book that's called methodology, where you're trying to articulate for folks what the functions of art are in the kind of spirit you suggest. So why not walk yes. us through a few? Yes. Okay. Um, first of all, it's a rude question. I mean, if you go up to a you know, serious elite person who's, who's interested in art and you say, okay, what, what's art for? They'll go, well, I don't know. That's a crude question. It's for whatever you want and <laughs> I want. And it's, you know, and you get a sense of kind of baffled fogginess around this topic. And there's been a, an idea that the point of art is to be for art's sake. And we kick off in a very utilitarian way and say, look, art is a tool. And like any tool, it's good to know what that tool is for so we know better how to use it. And we try and identify some of the things that art is good for. Most obviously, art is a mechanism for remembering things. You know, when do you pick up your smartphone and take a picture? When something interesting, important, significant has happened, you need to record it. We are creatures of faulty memories. And therefore, the origins of art lie in our cognitive weakness around issues of remembering. It's, you know, it's a basic point, but I think a key point. It begins with the fact that our, our, our minds don't hold things. And we say rather bluntly that art is a bucket. Um, it's a sophisticated kind of bucket, but it holds stuff 
Rembrandt is a bucket, and um, the better the bucket, the more the stuff it's holding is the fine-grained, nuanced, important stuff that normally just filters out immediately. We can't normally see it. But when you've got an artist like Rembrandt or Edward Hopper, he, he's putting his finger on something that's important that normally runs away. So that's a kind of first function. Another, you know, very basic function, again, the elite is a little bit worried about this, hope. If you look at what kind of art most people like and put on their walls, it's pretty stuff. It's meadows in spring. It's children gambling through, you know, forests. It's uh, sunny days in, 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 in the summer, etc. We are creatures who are almost chronically bound, uh, 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 inclining towards depression, despair, surrender of hope. And what we need from works of art is good cheer. Um, and that's why there's a lot of prettiness around. Um, in the 20th century, prettiness came under suspicion. But I think needlessly so. I know the reasons why, but needlessly so. So art is a source of hope. There's something else. And we art don't need to be ashamed about our fondness for prettiness in our art. Absolutely not. Right. Um, you know, we're not in danger of forgetting the bleak stuff. You right. know, you'd have to be very blind to forget the bleak stuff. What we are in danger of forgetting of is forgetting is, uh, you know, how to keep going. Another thing that's very important in art is that art lends dignity to sorrow. A lot of us have pains, distress, sources of suffering, which meet only with a certain bland response in daily life. But when you come up against certain works of art, you get dignified, serious, sublime articulations of sadness and grief, which is normally experienced in a very piecemeal and undignified and rather paranoid way by individuals. So we draw the, the, the reader's attention to the works of Richard Serra, great American sculptor, and a particular piece called Fernando Pessoa, which is a monumental piece of, you know, people would say, well, it looks rather gloomy, but rather like, you know, the cantatas of Bach or the songs of Leonard Cohen. This is gloominess in the service of, in a way, hope. I mean, it, we're back to that word hope. It's, it's saying, okay, life is grim, but you know, it's not just for you that it's grim. The human experience, you can suffer and still be a, a good person. Um, and it takes it, so out, it takes it out of the isolating quality that people may often feel their own sorrows or, or suffering entails. Exactly, exactly. Because isolation is such a thing that art can battle because it's a social medium. So once it's communicated, once it's in the community, uh, a lot of its sting, you know, declines. Um, you know, another thing that, that art can do is lend us appreciation for things. We, we live in a world where we're surrounded by images of glamour. What is an image of glamour? Glamour is something that makes a certain portion of life seem desirable and enviable. It so happens that where the media system works, we think that what's really glamorous and exciting is, you know, the Vanity Fair party after the Oscars. That's a catastrophic vision of glamour because it makes 99% of the population feel that they can't partake in it. And many of the great works of art pick up on things that are always around us. Um, you know, sunlight coming through the curtains on an uh, ordinary day, um, the look of a child, the, um, you know, feeling of a, a, a piece of bread that's been broken and is lying next to a, a plate. Very simple, everyday things lie at the heart of the beneficial power of a lot of art. It's re-enchanting the everyday that is always prone to being denigrated because what is always around is prone to be forgotten and its qualities 
become invisible. I want to finish our um, as we talk, we finish the the part of the book where you're talking about arts functions, which may seem as you had said, uh, maybe that's a crude way to put it, but it's very useful to think about in terms of art as a tool. I was very intrigued by your talk about art as a a means of rebalancing, a kind of emotional rebalancing. You say at one point our tastes in art will depend on what spectrum of our emotional makeup lies in shadow and is hence in need of stimulation and emphasis. What do you mean by that? Look, all of us are a little bit unbalanced. We're too anxious, we're too masculine, we're too feminine, we're too inclined towards reason or we're too emotional. And you know, that very key question, what's the art that you like, is partly an answer to what is missing within us. So the person who, let's say, feels their life to be very chaotic, all the time being overwhelmed by too much, might feel an incredible longing for places of purity and emptiness and order. I know that, you know, my chosen, you know, beautiful landscape is empty and rational and pure, not because my life is is empty and rational and pure, but precisely because it's the opposite. It's chaotic, it's too much, etc. And so, you know, we're drawn in art very often to the sort of things that are missing in our own lives. Why is it that one of the most popular kinds of styles for Americans to have in their kitchen is the shaker style, a kind of peasant, crafted, back-to-the-land thing, where most Americans live in urban context, surrounded by high technology. What's with the kitchen? What's going on there? It's very simple. We have grown alienated from nature, and we try and find in art things which we've lost contact with in our own lives. So there's an element of rebalancing. So, you know, anytime you, you see somebody with a taste you don't necessarily like or you can't understand, ask ask yourself and them, what is it they might be missing? You know, if they're so interested in flamenco dancing and the colourfulness of, <laughs> of, of of Spain, maybe something's gone a little dead and, you know, inclining towards sterility in them. So you don't have to like everybody else's taste, but you can kind of understand what might be missing to have inspired that taste. You, you know, it's interesting because I, when I was reading your thoughts on this, I was thinking to myself, I've always been very powerfully drawn to Magritte. And I thought, well, I, I guess I've always kind of assumed, well, maybe that's part of my tendency to over-intellectualize things because they're kind of these interesting, you know, juxtapositions of images that don't occur in real life. But may, maybe it's, I don't know, if, you, if you're my art therapist, what does that mean if I'm drawn to Magritte? What is the, what, what, do you have any off-the-cuff uh, diagnosis um, well, of what my... Yeah. Matt, my off-the-cuff diagnosis is that you're a very rational, very thoughtful person. And Magritte is in a way, a very rational, thoughtful painter who nevertheless takes you over the edge into an area where the rational man starts to feel the uncanny, the strange, the peculiar. And maybe you need an artist who's going to take you by the hand, who feels like a, a brethren and a soulmate, but is going to take you over the edge of the precipice of the normal, where maybe you have fear to go normally. And he's a kind of introduction into that. And he's a kind of calculated encounter with something that otherwise could be quite scary. And so it's a way of making friends with something that you might need but might generally be either overwhelming or, or unappealing. Uh, uh, Alain, this is superb. This is, uh, and that didn't take, that's nothing like a 50-minute therapy session. So, I know. Uh, so, no, I, I, I think this is, uh, we've got so many growth businesses for you, I think, uh, uh, if, if we can do this. Let us go, uh, it's, it, it, and I really urge people to engage with the book because even, even, in a, even in a detailed public radio conversation, it can be hard to fully um, engage in all its different dimensions. But I'll just mention, you talk about self-understanding, about growth, obviously, as other uh, functions of art that are important. Talk about, then, one of the things that really intrigued me is when you talk about what counts as good art and 
the question about what enters the canon that we're handed down as the kind of inheritors of uh, in each generation. Obviously, not something that's preordained, but something that a lot of people are doing a lot of maneuvering and uh, and uh, propagandizing to have that happen. Talk talk about how you view the canon. And, uh, Look, I mean, the, the canon art is terribly confusing because we end up in Paris in front of the Mona Lisa, and we are told this is the most important painting in the world. And what do we feel? Ninety nine percent of us feel puzzled, a little bit bored, and inclined to find the cafeteria. So in other words, the canon is oppressive. Uh, of course, there are major moments in art history where developments of a technical kind take place. You know, things move on, uh, major moments of history are captured in art, etc. And these things are very important, particularly to the scholars who keep a track of these things. But for you and I, who just want to be moved, helped, stirred, consoled by works of art, our own inner canon is likely to be very different from the canon that's around. And any sincere engagement with art has to mean, I think, parking the canon, as it's commonly defined by, you know, the folks at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York or wherever, and actually having a different approach, which is to say, how does this art help me? Um, and a more personal relationship with art will mean that, you know, Caravaggio isn't necessarily the most important painting, um, but you may be very stirred by, you know, something that um, you've seen just in, you know, a shop window that you've passed or, or whatever. So I'm arguing for sincerity and authenticity in response, which will, by definition, be a serious challenge to a kind of ordered hierarchy as arranged by the academic establishment. We're talking to Alain de Botton about uh, art and its therapeutic value. So if we've challenged the conventions about art does have a function and it's all these kind of humanistic uh, values you've laid out that it can, it can really play a role in, um, we've talked about the, how to think about the canon. You have a section on what kind of art should one make and kind of a, almost a, um, uh, a brief to artists or a call to artists to serve certain goals. And I was fascinated by uh, a photograph that I guess did you, did you commission it for the book with a photographer? Yeah, we, commi we commi commissioned it for the book. Called Agony um, of the Kitchen. Talk about this. Well, look, for centuries, art was not made according to the erratic and you know, beautiful imaginations of artists. It was made by people who said, look, we need a, a virgin and child. We need an altarpiece for you know, the new church. We need a crucifixion. In other words, the church was in the West the number one commissioner of art, and it had a very clear mission, which is to lend resonance and beauty to the Christian message. Now, artists in the 19th century broke away from that, and art became the fruit of the individual imaginations of artists. The problem is that that has led nowadays to a situation where many people visit works of art and think, I'm not sure what this is about or what this is for. And I suggest a, a, a new way. Um, partly it's playful, but partly it's serious, that art should remember its duty not to theology, but to psychology. In other words, the purpose of art in the modern world is to help us to deal with the conditions of our lives. And that is a mission. Now, what are the conditions of our lives? They include both, both the personal and the public, both the political and the, and, and the private. And they range from you know, how to separate from your, yourself from your parents, how to you know, grow up, how to face adolescence, how to find a job that you can uh, you know, be tolerable at, how to manage your relationship, how to deal with, 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 with the community and your involvement in, in the political realm, how to um, face mortality both in your own generation and those of, uh, in, in that of those you love. In other words, there are full of challenges for artists to confront. And I think it's a crying shame that so often 
artists are left to make stuff which leaves audiences thinking, I don't know what this is about. There sh it should be very easy to say what a work of art is about. Great works of art in the religious era never were undermined by the simplicity of their moral. A simple moral does not make a work, a simple or a simplistic work of art. You, you know, you can have a work of art that basically has as its purpose um, the reconciliation of couples who have arguments in the kitchen. You know, this comes back to the image that we we um, uh, we commissioned. You know, we, and, we, and I, I should I should mention by the way that uh, we will put up on the uh, this is interesting website. There's a little uh, set of uh, photographs that I know uh, the book uh, came associated with that we'll have there. Plus, artisttherapy.com I guess is the website which includes a, a whole series of examples of this uh, with uh, short essays. But, but go ahead, explain this uh, photo. So, well, we commissioned a photographer and we said, look, we want a photo with the following mission. We want a photo that will provoke the viewer to feel compassionate for themselves and others who are involved in relationships to which they're committed, but the relationship is hard going. There are a lot of struggles, there are a lot of fights, and there are a lot of moments when people call each other names they don't really mean and kind of regret a, a few minutes later, but it happens. It happens in your marriage, in my marriage, in all long-term relationships this happens and it's embarrassing and artists don't often talk about it and so we end up feeling we're freaks and we might get divorced or break up because we think well that's not normal uh, and uh, we're very susceptible to what works of art are around us and I think one of the real purposes of art is to kind of hold a mirror to the conditions of our lives and reconcile us to our lives so anyway we commissioned a photograph did this and you know it, it's simply saying maybe Artists shouldn't just be left all alone with the task of deciding what art is about. The, the wider society has has a responsibility and a power to commission and to guide artists in what they make. And what's so fascinating, by the way, I, I, I felt the shock of recognition in this uh, in this very powerful photo. And the whole your creative approach to this, what's um, it's a theme that's run through different parts of your work, like the book on religion for atheists, is a a bit of a fascination with or concern with the fact that our institutions today or secular institutions today, maybe that's the way to put it, have a lack of confidence about saying, um, you know, this is we need to be concerned with how people live and offer even instruction and not be shy about that in how people live. And you're kind of summoning art to that because as you as you point out, otherwise we're left to the just the the, the random luck that what uh, individual creative types end up finding compelling will actually resonate in ways that are useful for our lives. That's right. There's a terrific embarrassment among the elite about the idea that culture should in any way or that anyone should direct anyone into how to live. You know, the standard kind of adolescent, though it's become more than adolescent response is, who are you to teach me how to live? You know, I'm my own person, etc. Now, I think many of us do need guidance. I need guidance. And I wouldn't mind if somebody offered me guidance if I don't like it. You know, I'm not talking about coercion. Right. Um, I'm talking about guidance, which is a suggested form of advice. Um, and I think we desperately need it. And one of the suggestions I make is that the way that are, we arrange museums when we put, you know, the Met is arranged in the 19th century, the 18th century, the art of Japan, the art of China, etc. Now, these are curatorial categories that are fine for academics, but they don't touch the rest of us. I mean, why do I care that a painting was painted in, you know, the, the, you know, the last months of 1799 or the first, <laughs> the early months of 1801? That makes absolutely no difference. If I was in charge of the Met, it's an ambition I still harbour, um, I, I would make galleries according to themes that are important to all of us citizens. I would have a gallery for love. And in the gallery for love, you might, you know, one of the first paintings you would see might, might be something like Daphne and Chloe 
by Pisano, the Italian artist Pisano, a wonderful picture of what it's like to fall in love and to be so overwhelmed by appreciation of your lover. It's it's where love starts. And then you'd go from that to the moment when you can't bear somebody and you're, you're dying to get away from them. And art is full of amazing responses, both in sculpture, in modern art, in, in classical art. There are full of responses to the dilemmas, the tensions, the beauties of this phenomenon we know as, as love. Let's have a bit of help here from, from, or you know, mortality. I would have a gallery on death in which works of art would show us the different facets and emotions related to our mortal condition, something we desperately need help with. So I don't think it's a way of demeaning art. It's a way of paying art proper respect and respecting its power, which is power to change and redeem our lives. You know, when you put when you put it that way, it's striking, maybe like all the best ideas. When you lay this stuff out, it sounds like common sense. And you realize, I mean, everyone, at least uh, you, you, people like me will go to museums sometimes and you almost, I think, wrongly feel like you must be a Philistine because you're not appreciating the way it's been uh, laid out. But, but, but as you point out, and you have a, a very funny set of passages on the kind of typical label you'll see at the bottom right of a painting in the Metropolitan or the Louvre or other great museums where it, it, it's as if you were standing before a painting from the 18th century as if your primary question was, who owned this when and what was the provenance in the chain of you know, custody through which it got from then and commissioned by who to this day, rather than what did this artist find significant significant about the moment they were capturing and how does that speak to me today? That's right. I mean, one of the things we we try and do in the book is all the time, um, in a way, relax the viewer into bringing more of themselves to their encounter with a work of art. So, for example, one of the very basic things, a lot of art is about attractive people, okay? Now, when we go to a cafe and we sit down and we look around, one of the great pleasures of life is to look around for attractive people and then wonder what they might be like inside as people. It's one of the basic pleasures. And art does this wonderfully. But, you know, when you're looking at a, you know, woman... Um, you know, making some bread in a, in a kitchen in 18th century France, right? You're not encouraged to think that way. But one of the thoughts you might have, let's say painting by Chardin, one of the thoughts you might have is, hmm, this person looks really nice. I wonder what they're like. What would it be like to go, for, go out for dinner with this person, right? Now, this is not a thought that the museum ever encourages you to have. And yet it's clear that the pleasure of that picture is dependent on that kind of thing. Or let's imagine you're looking at an altarpiece of a mother and child, okay? In a way, one of the most taboo, but in a way the most natural thoughts is when you look at a picture like that is, hmm, I'd really like a hug or a cuddle. Now that sounds infantile. What, you like a, you're looking at a Bellini and you want a hug? What's going on? But that's precisely what Bellini's genius was directed towards doing, which is awakening in us a sense of the glory and dignity of maternal comfort. And the art establishment is congenitally cool. By that I mean not alive enough in the emotional, personal, intimate needs of their audiences and indeed of themselves. Um, And I'm arguing for a little bit of a warmer relationship between an audience and these great works of art. If they are to matter, if we're to spend billions of dollars on these temples to art, we've we've got to bring a little bit more of ourselves and ask a little bit more directly 
for help from these works of culture. Uh, just a few minutes left. You know, in, in that spirit, I do want to note that you have this great, uh, delicious kind of subversive suggestion for what the Tate Gallery in London's actual acquisition policy should be. Instead of this long, sober statement, which is their official statement of their policy about we collect from these periods, blah, 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 blah. Instead, you suggest the Tate purchases art. This would be the, how they'd acquire art. The Tate purchases art from any place in any period. It aims always to educate the British soul. It seeks to collect works that meet the psychological needs of the nation. Now, it sounds so simple once you articulate it, but it's kind of it would be kind of a revolution. That's right. You know, there are lots of national museums in Washington, in uh, in London, in, in other capital cities, national collections. And um, what are they really for? Uh, we argue that, that the point of a national collection is to take the pulse of the nation and to put before the nation works of art not in order to instruct in some banal academic theory that you know you must understand what went on in art beyond between two dates but really assist the nation to be the best of itself so you know if one was starting a national again in in uh, in, in the united states a national con- uh, uh, collection you would start by looking at what is going wrong with american life and I would start, if I was in charge of this national, new national collection, by saying that the number one thing that has gone wrong in this nation is civility. We don't know how to be civil with someone who doesn't agree with us. The person who doesn't agree becomes the enemy. So immediately you would say, what works of art can help us with this? And you would have a massive gallery dedicated to civility, not dedicated to the impressionist. Who cares about the impressionist as a label? There may be some impressionists who will be invited into that gallery, but I wouldn't put that over the door. So a national collection, we argue, is a collection which understands what's going wrong with the nation and uses works of art to set us on a more interesting and, and healthier course. And I urge people to look at all the different sections where Alain Gauss talks about what art can teach us about money, capitalism, politics, etc. Talk about the gift shop. One of the things that I think was interesting. I always liked this in Magritte, by the way. I remember reading Magritte saying, you don't need to own one of my original paintings. Just have a print. You'll you'll get it. Uh, you, talk Look, about, you talk about the gift shop is the most essential in some ways part of the museum. Why? Um, one of the great lies of museums is that it's really important to go to them. Um, the, the real secret is the postcard is in 99% of cases just as good. And by the time you're getting to the poster, it's so beautifully precise. You really don't need the so-called original. We are still fetishizing the unique original, which was supposed to be disappearing by you know, the means of mechanical reproduction. Um, you can get a lot out of art from its so-called reproduction. Just as, you know, you would be a very bizarre person to go, well, I'm not going to read War and Peace because I need the original. Um, <laughs> I, I need the actual manuscript which Tolstoy wrote, right? That's how weird we are about art. You don't need the original. The, the, the facsimile is fine. Um, so, in other words, we should come... And, and also, you know, why is the gift shop important? The gift shop is the moment when you have a chance to take the lessons of the museum back out into the world. And that's a terrific responsibility. It's basically like saying, you know, if art's going to be meaningful, how can we take something away and put it back in our lives? And normally museum gift shops fail dramatically. They just print, a, you know, a tea towel with a picture, you know, with, with Picasso's signature or, you know, a bit of a Monet detail or something. And that's, you know, disastrous. So one of the things we, we, we do in the book is try and imagine you know, what, it, what should the ideal gift shop have. We try to imagine what a Vermeer tea towel should be like. In, uh, in Amsterdam at the Rijksmuseum, the most popular item is a Vermeer tea towel uh, with a woman reading the, the, 
the letter reproduced on a tea towel. And we say, okay, what is a real Vermeer tea towel? What was Vermeer really interested in? He was interested in the dignity of everyday life. In other words, that an ordinary tea towel could be a beautiful object. It becomes beautiful, not by having Vermeer's picture on it, but by being an item that's been made with quality, in non-exploitative conditions, and that is alive to the full possibilities of tea towels. I mean, I'm slightly teasing, but you know, what does it mean to live according to the values and ideas of great artists? It doesn't mean buying the mug. So there is a there is a mission for the gift shop to make art, the values of art, more alive in the world. But, but currently gift shops are not doing it. How did you develop your sensibility on all this, Alain? And, ha- and how does the art establishment react to you? Look, ultimately, it's a political sensibility in the broadest sense. It is a desire to make the world a better place. And normally we've got this thing called politics, which we think is about budgets, and of course it is in many ways, but it's also about values. And I think of art as a prime transmitter of values through a society. And it drives me mad that elite people are so interested in subtlety and ambiguity and individual responses to works of art that they will not speak in a clear voice about the possible benefits of works of art. And therefore, the potential of art is lost. And out there in the marketplace, you know, the real voices are commercial voices that are making a lot of noise. And the quieter voices of art, the beautiful voices of art, are getting lost. And so I'm I'm taking a calculated risk with a certain kind of vulgarity in order to try and make the voice of culture more powerful in the world. Uh, just briefly, uh, just a, a last question, Alain. The School of Life, I'm fascinated by that project that you've launched, which is kind of bringing together all your uh, efforts to, through your books to try and create an institution, I guess, that, uh, that uh, well, you, you tell us what it is. Well, it's a place, you can look at it online, theschooloflife.com. It's a place that, that gives lessons and instructions in the great questions using works of culture, very much what I do in my books, but in a physical space, in a space of community. And uh, we've got one in London, one will be opening in, in um, Australia, we've got another one opening in France, hopefully one day in the US. And it's just, in a way, it's my approach to culture made alive in an institution. Uh, in filling a gap that arguably higher education or schools uh, in general have abdicated, right? I mean, that's the, the absolutely that, 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 that's the that that's what's it, it, driven this. It, it's it's been driven by my frustration when I was a student, when I was when I went to college, and I looked to my professors and and my instructors to kind of answer these big questions, and on the whole, they didn't. The system wasn't set up for that. So this is a a, a place that and it sounds pretentious, but it's not meant to be. That aims to transmit wisdom. Uh, well, Elan, that's all. You know, we're we're going to have to leave it there. We could go on for uh, we could go on for hours. The last business idea for you, I'll leave you with. I'm becoming your agent here in the U.S. Is <laughs> I would like a a kind of uh, idiosyncratic audio tours of the great museums of the world by Elan de Botton. You could probably do it virtually. I was thinking about this, but the the institutions, the museums, my guess, are very jealous about how their images are used. So maybe it has to be a walking tour that we'd uh, download on our iPod. But anyway, thanks so much for taking the time. Congrats. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, Thank you, Matt. On the book, Gary Scott and Laura Dine Million produced today's show. Our technical director is Melissa Morton, with a big thanks to Sarah Lou at WBEZ in Chicago. Let us know what you found interesting at kcrw.com slash thisisinteresting. I'm Matt Miller. Find the show on demand on the KCRW mobile app or wherever you download podcasts. Thanks for listening, and join us again soon for another edition of This is Interesting. This is Interesting.